0: All right, remain standing, and we're going to read the Magnificat together. You can open uh, to your Bibles, to Luke 1, 46 to 55, or we're going to have it up here on the screen, and when I start to read, just read right along with me. Ready? Let's go. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold... and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right, if you have kids and you want to take them back to the uh, back room there, with Joy and Milena, now's your moment. You can run them back there. Um, I wanted to share just a little bit of a... I'm trying to give some little thoughts right before we jump into some of these sermons while the kids transition. And I, I wanted to give one little thought just on, um, on kind of the patient work of the kingdom. And so it was, a, it was an interesting thing I, I realized the other day. I was in a phone call with some community leaders about an event that we're working on. We've talked about the Cyclovia events and how one's coming up in February and one's coming up in March. And, um, and the one in February, in this case, we, we actually have a lot of, of influence, our little community here, in what happens there. And actually, it's, uh, they're kind of asking us for a lot of help and guidance. And I thought to myself, I thought, you know, the interesting thing is back when, when I first started Midtown, which was one of the two little churches that merged into who we are today. Uh, we, we rode Cyclovia. We took some people out there, and we rode the, the bike route just to be around some folks. And the year after that, we started volunteering, and we volunteered every year. And here we are. I think this is the, the eighth uh, engagement, and this is for the first time we've been invited to actually shape this event a little bit and to actually be a voice into it. Um, and the reason for that is because they, they look at us, our little community, as people who have volunteered faithfully over this long course of time. Um, I, I don't know the long term effects of, of all these things, but I just wanted to encourage you in this, in this fact that your faithful volunteering at one community event has led to that organization looking to us to actually give input to that event. That's a big deal. That took eight years, okay? And um, as I've thought about a lot of other things I, I shared not long ago about a student that I-, that I worked with that I got to visit in Boston, my journey with him has been something like 15 years. And then I talked about another, another guy in Phoenix that I've had, t- had a chance to-, to work with and follow up with. My journey with him has been something like 25 years. But in all of these cases, God has not left the situation. And, the, and in fact, there's been spiritual progress, even during times where it's felt like, what's happening here? There's nothing happening at all. So just just a little reminder, as we head into, uh, as we head into Christmas, thinking about, I mean, what are we thinking about here? We're thinking about Jesus coming into the world and being born uh, people aren't going to hear him speak any words of his ministry for 30 years, right? God is at work, even when to us it feels like it's taking forever. So let's pray, and we'll enter into our, uh, into our sermon this evening. Father in heaven, thank you for these people who you have gathered together. Thank you for the work that you're doing in their lives and their families. Thank you for the work that you're doing in our extended circles, our friendships, Thank you for the callings that you've given us, the, the people who we interact with who look to us. And when they look at our lives, it's humbling to say that they look and they see the church when they see each one of us, when they engage with us at work, uh, when they see us out and about, when we have conversations. Uh, to them, we are the church. We are your people. We are Christianity. I pray that you would encourage us as we think about these things. Thank you for the the amazing responsibility, but also please shape us into people who represent you well. This evening, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So it's the Sunday before Christmas, right? And we're aiming here to prepare our hearts to receive Jesus. And so we're, we're talking about how um, we're receiving him in our acknowledgement that God entered into the human struggle in Jesus the Son. And that is an incredible statement that is that that is a huge, utterly huge statement. To say that God experienced things like infancy and growth and development and weakness and temptation like we do. I mean, to say as, as we say, as we tell the whole story, that he ended up dying in our place. This is a, this is a massive idea. And then um, for us now, those who, who can confess that with their mouth and believe in their heart, we prepare to receive him as he is today, um, which is a whole nother incredibly mind-blowing idea because the scriptures declare he rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, in heavenly places and has all authority and is present with us through the Holy Spirit and that he is with us always, even till the end of the age. That is an incredible statement. And if it's true, wow, what it means, right? Who receives this Jesus? Tonight we're going to talk about how the humble receive him. And how? It's simple. You believe. Those are our two big ideas tonight. Who receives Jesus and how? This Magnificat that we just read together is Mary's song. It's the first Christmas song. It's a magnification and a song of glory to God. Uh, Many traditions consider Mary to be the first disciple of Jesus. She's the first one that hears that Jesus is coming. She's the first one that, in a sense, interacts with him in his humanity and his incarnation. And she believes, even at his conception, that he is who God said he is. And so she is an example to us. And Mary was humble and poor. Leviticus 12 talks about the the type of sacrifice you would need to make for your sins back in the Old Testament. And it talks about what, what you'd have to bring. You'd have to bring uh, you'd have to bring, a, like, a lamb or a goat or something that, that many people would have. These are I even have a goat, in case you didn't know. That's, it doesn't, no. Back then, it was, it was common. Now, it's not. But Mary and Joseph, they brought two turtle doves because in Leviticus 12, it says, if you can't afford to bring your sacrifice, if you can't afford this, the temple sacrifice, it's possible that you could bring pigeons or turtle doves. And that's what they brought with them when they brought their, their son, Jesus to the temple. And they were poor. And Mary, she sees herself as having been chosen by God to bear the Son of God. And she talks of this as a mercy, uh, as God's loving kindness to an undeserving person. I mean, here she is. She's a young girl. And she's been promised what she speaks of in the Magnificat that, that she is bearing in herself the strong arm of the Lord which a few weeks ago we talked about. This is, this is a, an anticipated person for Jewish people. This, this is the one who comes to bring the rule and the authority of God. And she believes she's bearing the strong arm of the Lord within herself who's going to save God's people. And she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, because what else could she do? She could never say, ah, of course it's me. It's not how she felt. So whose lives does Jesus enter and how are two simple questions. And the answers are short. I already gave them to you. But they're far, far from simple. Who receives Jesus? The humble. We see this in verses 52 and 53. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. And... What's really tempting to do, and I've seen this, I actually read it in one of the old, one of the really popular commentaries, um, where somebody said, they, they didn't even explain it, they just said, so the poor in spirit uh, receive Jesus. And, and that is, in a sense, to take the edge off of what's just been said here, that he exalts those of humble estate, fills the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away empty, right? Um, a woman came into our store the other day, and she was talking to me about how she had Moved to Tucson and bought a mobile home and was, uh, was looking at uh, getting a different mobile home, and she said something about how uh, she got driven out of Detroit because of all the gentrification and the rich people were coming. And she looked at me and said, I mean, you're probably one of the rich people, but I thought I'd tell you about it anyway. And I, I didn't tell her my story because I, I grew up in a mobile home, but I don't live in one now. Um, but what I just said to her is I said, from what I can gather, we're all in the top 1%, right? And then she kind of went, right. So this, these words are hard to hear. And if you're the type of scholar that's writing a commentary, you're probably not that poor, right? Most likely. Now, when you dig down on this, the fact is it never says poor in spirit. In fact, this, those of humble estate, those, those were poor people. Um, this is talking about material wealth and poverty. It, it really actually is. Um, that's what it's saying. When it says the rich he has sent away empty, it means people that are externally wealthy. Um, we discussed this last week, that God actually does have a very strong disposition towards those with actual and real need. And Mary's an example of this. Um, but another, another comes to mind in the Christmas story. I, I was just thinking through the, the the characters, right, in the nativity scene, I was like, well, there it is, the shepherds on, on the hills outside of Bethlehem. I mean, this, this is an example of the poor and how God approaches them and exalts them. You know, this might not strike us the same today in our context. I mean, you know, I have a goat. I just told you I have a goat. What does that mean? Uh, we have extra money. What you have a goat now because you have extra money in most of our situations. Like, we give this goat extra food. We have built this goat a shelter. If, if we were impoverished, there'd be no more goat. Our <laughs> friends from Africa came over, and they wanted to know if we planned to keep the goat, why it looked very delicious. That they legit, that is what they were talking about, right? And Michaela was like, Ah! <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about this, right? It's kinda we had to we had to have this little moment we're like, so it's a pet. And they were like, oh, why? I don't know. You know. (laughs) I don't know why. I have no idea. I love this. Um, today if we we think about shepherd and we think about people that, oh, they, they have animals or farming or or you know that it, you get more honor today if you farm, or you're a maker, or something like that. I mean, those are you do. Oh, you do. Oh, you do woodwork. Like I, I ran a woodworking shop, and people were like, oh, you do woodwork. That is so cool, right? And they're like, you should start a YouTube uh, channel. Everybody wants to see this. And if you have a farm, same kind of. I mean, people that people light up. Wow, you you farm, right? And it, and it honestly, today can take a, a decent amount of privilege to run a farm. It requires business know-how and connections and resources. So sometimes when we hear about the shepherds, we don't quite connect with just the situation that they were in, right? But in their day, the shepherd was fairly low class. Their job was saturated in potential uncleanliness. And I don't just mean external, like, oh, they were outside, but spiritually. I mean, if you, if you think about kind of the, the Levitical law that these folks are, are living under, these people were around dung and animal carcasses. There, there's a there's a solid chance that they were like in a perpetual state of not being able to go to the temple, and were always like other people got had a lot of access, and they were like, again, I can't. Um, they were they were in a state of of not just yeah, not just external uncleanliness, but spiritual uncleanliness in people's eyes in many many ways. I was trying to think, you know, who, who's like that today? And the best, the best version I could come up with, and I've been here, uh, is fast food, like the fast food worker. And, um, and, and I've, I've worked fast food. I worked Taco Bell and McDonald's. I've done both of those. And, and I can say, you know, I've been there, and I can say I appreciate essential workers. But look, I'm, I'm going to admit something, right now to you all. And that is, when I worked at Taco Bell, um, I I lived in a mobile home at the time, and I worked at Taco Bell, but still, there was a long time Taco Bell employee. She'd been there for decades. And one day she felt I was kind of slacking off, and she she gave me a talk about how I needed to work harder. And in my shame, in my 16-year-old foolishness, I looked at her and I said, like, I'm going to take advice from you, right? And you cringe hearing it. I cringe telling you I said that, and I did. Um, but here's the deal. To be honest, there are some people out there who, and I wouldn't say it anymore because I've learned how to shut my mouth most of the time, but there are people who I, I think we all could come up with our list of people you might say, they're, they're really sweet folks, but I would not respect their advice. I wouldn't hear what they had to say. And that was the shepherds. It wasn't just their job, but it's how they were looked upon in society. Dirty, sure, but more importantly, less respectable. How, here's how you know you respect somebody. It's not just if you, if you say yes, ma'am, or whatever. Um, it's if you take their advice. So, with that in mind, imagine, imagine this scenario: late Christmas Eve, about 11 p.m. Most of us, even though our Christmas Eve service is late this year, most of us will be home in our cozy homes here in Tucson. The kids will be asleep. For some of us, maybe there's some uh, some gift wrapping going on. Maybe we break out the hot chocolate. Maybe we're kind of just gonna gonna throw a little show on our phone or something like that, and kind of kind of take it easy. Or or if we're really righteous, we'll read a book, you know. And, uh, and meanwhile, there's, a, there's some workers getting off, off work. And they're, and they're not from Chick-fil-A or in and out No, 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 no. We're talking Carl's Jr. and El Beto. Okay, this is Campbell and Broadway. This is, when's the last time you took advice from a Carl's Jr. employee? Right? And they cross the street, and uh, they're headed over to the bus stop over there on Broadway, and they bump into some of the deli workers getting off from Safeway, and, uh, and the stalkers of the shelves at Safeway are just coming in. They're just heading into work. They're hopping off the bus, and one of them lights up a cigarette they really can't afford and cracks open some of those, some of those uh, you know, like, what are the, the, the potato sticks that you get over there at Safeway, um, and they pass a few of those around because those are always left over. Believe me, I've, I've bought the last batch and it's, it's rough. And, and they kind of sit down at the bus stop and they're talking. And, uh, and an angel of the Lord walks up. Ah. Now, these are folks you could say, this, this is your working class evangelical potentially, right? These people might be simple-minded enough to believe this is the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord walks up and appears, and there's a bright light, and they kind of start to freak out. And a couple of them start hunting for their phones and their purses, and he says, relax. Today, in the Spanish Trail Suites, I-10 and 4th Ave, a Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord. You'll know that you found him because he'll be wrapped in an old fitted sheet and sleeping in a bathtub. And they are not too sure what to think about this. And they, and they sit there on the, on the bench, completely confused. And all of a sudden, they are looking out. And it's as if, as if the Tucson skyline is parted like a stage curtain. And a multitude of glorious heavenly beings are singing. And it's like they've just been transported into the concert hall. And they're singing, glory in the highest and on earth peace among them, those who he is pleased, and they look at each other, and they're thinking, are they talking about us? Is this real? And the angelic host slowly starts to depart, and one of them kind of scratches their head and says, you want to go check that out? And they just nod, and they walk over to the other side of the road to the bus stop to head toward the Spanish Trail. And it turns out that they were the first people invited to see Jesus ever. And they show up at the Spanish Trail, and they find exactly what they were looking for, and immediately they leave, and they start texting their friends and posting it on Facebook, and nobody thinks they're in their right mind. Okay? That's probably about what it felt like for Theophilus, who, who would have been the recipient of the book of Luke, to read that shepherds were the ones who who saw the angelic manifestation of the heavenly hosts in the sky. That would have been surprising and very unexpected. Sweet, beautiful, but very unexpected. If you'd asked Theophilus, who do you think is going to find out when the king of the ages shows up, he would have scratched his head and guessed a lot of people but not the shepherds, never. He he probably wouldn't even have remembered they were an option, to be truthful. But here, the lowest, the unrespected, the people you never get advice from were utterly exalted. The the humble were filled. And think about it, the rich and privileged weren't even in the loop. Nobody clued him in that night. He has exalted those of humble estate, He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. So who does Jesus come to? It says the humble." And we learn this in God's choice in Mary, and we learn it when God breaks His biggest news in history to shepherds. right So how do we receive him? Um, now, the plot thickens few years later. I, I, I'm sorry to break this to you, by the way, but your uh, your manger scenes are false. The, the wise men weren't there at the time, right? So what you should really do is you should stick your wise men like out by the curb and then have a three-year symbolic journey where they come into your house every day. You just inch them a little closer if you really want to teach it. Thank you. Yep, I know. We've, now we're now we're shaking it up. Um, but a few years later, the wise men, right, they show up. And at this point, Jesus is walking. Can you, can you imagine? I mean, this is not how we tend to think of it. Jesus is eating random things he finds on the floor. That probably happened. Um, and most likely, he is what we would now call potty trained. Jesus did these things, right? And these, this very different crew shows up—the wise men from the east. Um, I learned I, I watched Tim Keller's Advent thing, and he called them the Magi. And I was like, "Oh shoot, I've been calling them Magi like a fool." Unless he doesn't know. But I get it, I'm guessing it's the Magi. It turns out. Did you not learn something new every day? Um, we don't know a lot about these people. We really don't. Um, we know they brought three gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but we don't know how many there were. The idea of the three just comes from the gifts. We assume one had, there was one per gift. We have no good reason for that. The Eastern Church says there was 12. And, um, and from what I can gather, they say that because there were like 12 tribes of Israel and 12 apostles, so they're just like, there's a 12 theme, four of them each carried a gift together, let's go with 12. I, I don't know. But whatever the case, they were men of learning, men of great wealth, men who could, could, they could afford to travel ridiculously long distances and endure the cost of that trip and bring enough resources to, to live as wise men on this trip. There's a good chance they were, they were Persian, maybe, Zoroastrian priests. That's a solid possibility. Um, whatever, they, whatever they were, they could have been Arabian, by the way, that's another speculation based on their gifts, but whatever they were, they were astrologists. Uh, that word, magi uh, speaks to the, them practicing some form of magic arts. Okay, so these are people; they're, they're like astrologists. They look to the they look to the cosmic heavenly bodies to predict the great events on earth, and they, they were not Jewish. Um, nor were they probably predisposed to Jewish beliefs. These are people who came from a completely different area. But they brought gifts that you bring to a king. And now, it seems that they'd been reading Israel's ancient texts. And and they seem to have been reading more of it than Herod, Israel's king, had been reading, because they were onto something that he was not onto. And they were compelled by things that they were seeing in the sky, and we we know there was an actual astronomical phenomena of, of planets conjoined, I believe it was Jupiter and Saturn, and so there would have been around this time an actual event in the sky, but they believed that that was aligning with something that they were reading in these ancient texts, and they were out looking for the king. And then how do you look for a king, right? In the capital city, in the palace, and that's what they did. They showed up in Jerusalem, they showed up to the palace they were looking for the king and they got a not so great impression of jewish people right from Herod who did not he 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 even comes across sleazy just reading it right and they and they had a dream later and they didn't go back to talk to him ever again so they get a not so great impression but they're still hunting and when they came to the home where this child lay or walked uh since it was three years later, they found that this astronomical phenomena was also located right above this place, and somehow it confirmed their belief that this was the king that they were hunting for. And it's really, it's really incredible to think about this. These men seeking something they did not understand, using a pagan methodology, were directed by God using that methodology to Jesus through astrology. And the crossing of Jupiter and Saturn all mixed in with reading the ancient texts. And what's even more amazing is that they did what the king of Israel was nowhere near doing. They found him, and it says that they bowed down and they worshipped him. So they actually understand a far deeper sense of what's going on here than anyone else that we've heard of. They are worshipping kings you know, priests, whatever they were, these great learned men are worshiping him and they're taking their their gifts and they're laying them before him. And it's not just their gifts because they have spent a fortune looking for this king, right? And then God led them in a dream to not disclose his location. He has exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. Last week I warned us not to over-spiritualize words like these. God really does care for the poor. Not just the poor in spirit, the actual poor. But here's your moment where you don't under-spiritualize these words because God does honor those who are willing to become poor for his sake, who would lay their riches down. Who in their hearts would say, you are Lord over everything I have earnestly I seek you. These men had wealth the shepherds couldn't imagine, but they used it to seek the king that they didn't even understand. And then they worshiped Jesus with their wealth. Thinking about this made me think of two very different rich men that Jesus would later encounter. And the first is Mark 10, Matthew 19, the rich young man is how we read of him. And this man he is, if he went to this church, you would all want him to be an elder. Seriously. This is the guy who he follows the law to a T. He does all the things. His righteousness is evident to everybody who sees him. And and Jesus doesn't even disagree with his self-appraisal that he tries to keep all these things. And Jesus says to him, you only lack one thing, sell all you have and give it to the poor and follow me. And he went away dejected. That was the one thing he didn't want to do. And, and if you think about it, I mean, what, what does that mean? Like he, and this is a guy, I I mean, he he just wanted some self-care. He he got a certain amount of comfort from his wealth. He felt secure because of it. These are things that we all want. And to lay that down would be to rip away the very thing that brought him that peace and that security, right? He couldn't let it go. And then there was Zacchaeus. This is later in Luke, Luke 19. The stinking cheat, the traitor. You know, Matthew, we talked about Matthew uh, in our Diverse Disciples series. Matthew, the tax collector. Well, this guy's the chief tax collector. So he's a whole other level Of total jerk. He is taking money from Jewish people on behalf of the Roman government, but he himself was one of the Jewish people. He's a traitor, he's the prince of traitors, and he is very stinking wealthy. And he he just wants to see Jesus. He hears about him. And we always think of, you know, there's the song Zacchaeus was a wee little man, just to mess up your whole lives again. We should maybe be singing Jesus was a wee little man because there's no reason in the text to believe that Zacchaeus was short. It may have been Jesus was so short Zacchaeus couldn't see him. Go just mind bend around that one for a minute. Zacchaeus might have been six foot five climbing a tree to try to see short little Jesus in the crowd. Isn't that interesting? I I looked into our friend Rod has told us this. But I, I went and dug in, and sure enough, I mean, it's, it's just as likely in the text. Zacchaeus was like, who is the little guy who's making all the buzz? And he's trying to find Jesus. And, and he, he finds him, and Jesus says, I'm, I'm coming to your house, right? And nobody was happy about this. This is like, if I, it's, it's the equivalent of this. If I came up to you, one of you guys, you know, here at church, you said, hey, what are you doing next week? And I said, oh, my gosh, amazing. Jerry Falwell Jr. invited me on his yacht with him and his family. Great, right? And you'd go, what? You talk to him? Well, I mean, he looked me up, you know. He got excommunicated from his church. He thought he'd get, is that, we're not cool with this? No, we're not cool with it? Why? Because he was one of us, supposedly. He's a crook. He betrayed us all. He gets rich off of Christians. All the millions that he's out spending, the reason he has his yacht is because we thought he was legit and didn't drink beer, right? How could you hang out with this guy? That's Zacchaeus. But Zacchaeus went over to his house. And Zacchaeus, this guy says, okay, okay, okay. I'm going to pay everybody back four times what I took from him, which means he was super rich. Super rich. And Jesus said, today's salvation has come to this house. Wow. Anybody can come back to Jesus, right? Who does Jesus come to? The humble, the poor, those willing to lay down and give Jesus their wealth, who will do anything to follow him. So how do we receive him? believe. When Elizabeth, Mary's elder cousin, the mother of John the Baptist, learned that that Mary was bearing the Son of God, she said this, and we read this in our first two weeks of these sermons. She said, blessed is she who believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. See, Mary had been, she had been visited by the angelic messenger, Mary knew her Bible. Mary knew that God had promised a king, a redeemer. And so when she was told in the context of her, getting her, of her life getting very altered and getting very difficult, which it was, right? Mary was not entering into a pleasant span of time when she heard this message. She was entering into where her whole community is going to look at her with a sideways glare, assuming that she has been unfaithful, to her husband, and she's going to bear this promise while nobody believes her. But when she was told she would bear the child, she believed it, and she was blessed. And so were we because of her, because she was the first faithful disciple of Jesus. Today, the Bible promises the return of Jesus, that he will return and restore everything that's been lost, That he will usher in, it says, a new heavens and a new earth. That he will undo the curse, that he will right all the wrongs. But as we wait for that, we go through times of trial. Jesus told us, You will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. When the shepherds saw the angel and the multitude, they responded. They went to see and they believed. And likely they didn't understand all of what was going on around them. They were not scholars. They were not welcome in most synagogues. But God welcomed them and gave them the most incredible display of his glory that anyone saw and had seen in hundreds of years. Now, some of you may feel like this religious stuff is kind of confusing, like just a little bit of it makes sense. But all you need is God's invitation. Don't don't worry about what anyone else thinks. Don't worry about what I say. I told you how stupid I was. And the thing I said to my coworker, if God has invited you, come to him. Church, if God has called a person such as this, anyone, receive them. Who are we to decide who can comprehend the gospel? God declares the good news to whoever he wants and calls us to do the same. We don't get to decide who walks with Jesus. He will invite the poor. He'll invite people we do not respect. Expect it. People with very different backgrounds than than me, than you, often see things differently And we should not divide ourselves up based on these things. In fact, what we should do is we should gather around the same child born in Bethlehem. That is the binding tie of Christians. It's the only one. Then there's the wise men. And um, I don't know what they assumed they were seeking, but they were so inwardly convinced that something was worth seeking that they were willing to spend their wealth to find it. I think we actually know a lot more of these people than we think if you look around the world and our culture, how many people are there that believe very different things than we do? And we can be very discouraged by this, right? And go, ah, we're not, we're, not the, we're not the elites. Sometimes they feel like the elites. This is the intelligentsia, right? These are people who are seeking after the answers of life, and they're not looking where we would look. But I'm telling you, if you tune into what people are saying, if you listen, if you think about it, people are spending their, their people are spending their whole savings, they're spending their resources trying to find life's answers. All of the things that are not Christian are getting funded by philanthropists, right? People are seeking answers. And they're putting their wealth behind it. They're working very hard. More people are getting therapy than ever. More people are talking about being spiritually interested that they have in a long time. Even think about this. People are very angry at religious people who are abusing their religion, and I see in that they must care a little bit about the fidelity of religion, or else just... I think people are seeking something real and true. From what we know about God, it's a sure thing he's aligning some of the stars and the planets. Isn't that a weird thing to think about? That's what happened with the, the wise men. And he's pointing people to Jesus. I emailed Hannah Rettler this week. And some of you remember Hannah. She lives in Utah now. That's apparently where all our great people go, right, Kenton? Or, there's nothing out there. The Californians have bought up all the land. Don't even try. Um, no, just kidding. But, uh, but I emailed Hannah and asked her if I could, could mention her story a little bit. And, and many of you have heard it. There's a, a podcast out there. Maybe I'll drop it on our Facebook page again just to remind you. But, um, you know, Hannah, Hannah came to us. She walked in to uh, one of our kind of basics of the faith sessions. It was our last one, and Nick and I, were, we were done because there were like a couple of you faithful folks showing up to it, but we were like, the people who were coming had been Christians for like 20 years. And we're like, we're doing basics of the faith. Nobody seems to be really having time for this. And Hannah Rettler walked in. And, uh, and she'd had some interesting experiences. She'd, uh, she'd been up on Mount Lemmon. And had some like kind of deep spiritual senses of things and saw a pine cone cross on the ground. And was very like shaken by this. What does this mean? And uh, and Hannah was I mean, she's was very engaged in kind of spiritual thinking, but especially the inner self. Like you look to you look to the inner self to guide you. But she'd been having these strange thoughts about like submission and how important that really might be. And she was she was just torn by this and didn't know what to do with it. So she, uh, she was really into tarot and stuff like this. So she went to, a, went to her psychic and told her psychic about the cross of the, and the um, pine cones. And her psychic said, that might have been Jesus. And she was like, what? <laughs> and uh, and through, through a whole bunch of different stuff, walked into this church and sat down with us and just started talking about the basics of the faith and took a hike with Rochelle, and Rochelle told her about Jesus, and it clicked, right? Here's a great example. She she didn't know what she was looking for. And, And when you listen, I listened back to her podcast today, and she said, what I realized was that God was the one looking for me. I thought I was looking for something, it was God, that was looking for me. And maybe that's you or someone you know. Maybe you've been looking long and hard and you never expected to find the power that you were looking for entering into the world in weakness and like a child. It's surprising. But consider the wisdom of God. How many of our wounds are from our childhoods? I've talked to a lot of you. I've listened to myself. That's true. How many of us have been damaged by people within the, the, the quote-unquote people of God, people within the church? How many of us are like, that's where the damage happened? A lot of us have. How many of us live under the weight of what's been done to us by someone else or under the weight of who we are and what we know we've done and continue to do? And it just, just sits on us like a weight, and we feel like we can't walk through life anymore. We can't come before God, that's for sure. God, though, entered into our situation to live a life like ours. Think about this, to suffer unjustly. He didn't just suffer when he was arrested. He suffered by arriving, by being weak, by living in a poor family. And then is arrested and mistried, suffers under the religious leaders, under the church suffers under unjust political leaders, under Rome, and under Israel. And in all of this, even his closest disciple Peter said he lived without sin, but then he dies the death the worst criminal dies. None of this is fair. And in doing that, he proves that death is not the final word. Neither are any of those damaging effects of sin. What other king, what other power in this earth has ever come like this? Has ever related to us this well and offered himself this personally? I would encourage you, perhaps it's worth studying the ancient prophecies. Perhaps it's time to open your heart to worship him. I'm not sure these wise men had all the pieces put together. But they bowed before him. And that's really the most important thing. Perhaps you have a sense in your heart, kind of like Hannah, that he's been pursuing you this whole time. Whatever the case, a table is set before us. Jesus has come in the flesh and in the blood. And we come proclaiming that he came, that he died, and that he will return. The only question before you this evening is will you bow before him? Will you believe? Will you come and come and see? We're going to take a time of confession now, and now is your time to answer those questions in your heart. If and I'm not just suggesting this as, as those of you who think you know who might be thinking about it the first time, I mean, we're all we're all the rich young man, we're all Zacchaeus. Some of us have grown up in this. We've seen it our whole lives. And it's, it's good to re examine Jesus, who he is, and what his call is. There's going to be a period of time after I pray where you'll have two minutes to just sit with God and ask these questions. And ask him to, to forgive you, heal you of the things you've been through, and to reveal himself to you right in the middle of it all. After confession, um, Mike will bring us back into a a time of singing together and the table will be available to you. um, And you're invited. The prerequisite prerequisite is you you believe and that you say, I'll bow down before him. We have giving in the back. Our hope is that you would just give to his kingdom's work. When we sing, we invite you to sing with your whole hearts. And if you can't, It's okay. You can just listen. And after all this is done, we'll have dinner together because we're a a people. God has called us together. We're all very different. This is a chance to get to know each other, look each other in the eye, and accept one another. Let's pray. Father, I praise you for the ways that you've brought your church together around your incarnate Son. Your wisdom is greater than the wisdom of this world. We're still kind of like the wise men, right? We we look for you in all of the powerful places. We're looking for you in all of our own ways. And you're so merciful that you lead us to yourself. That you utilize ways that you know will listen. The, the, the things that we're looking for, you you come to us, you pursue us, even in the midst of those things. The truth is, just like the shepherds who nobody viewed as respectable, neither are we. We don't really have it all together. We, we don't deserve anything from you. But you break open the heavens and your body was broken for us. As we pray to you, we pray that you would open our hearts to see you for who you are, that we would receive you again today, and that you would heal us. So lead us now as we pray.